Chapter Six of Birds and Man by William Henry Hudson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Secret of the Willow Wren. The Willow Wren is one of the commonest and undoubtedly the most generally diffused of the British songsters. A summer visitor, one of the earliest to arrive, usually appearing on the south coast in the last week in March. A little later, he may be met with in very nearly every wood, thicket, hedge common marsh orchard and large garden throughout the kingdom it is hard to say writes seabone where he is not found wherever there are green perching places and small caterpillars flies and aphids to feed upon there you will see and hear the willow wren he is a sweet and constant singer from the date of his arrival until about the middle of june when he becomes silent for a season resuming his song in july and continuing it throughout August and even into September. This late summer singing is, however, fitful and weak, and less joyous in character than in the spring. But in spite of his abundance and universality, and the charm of his little melody, he is not familiarly known to the people generally, as they know the robin redbreast, pied wagtail, dunnock, redstart, wheat ear, and stone chat. The name we call him by is a very old one, it was first used in English by Ray in his translation of Willoughby's Ornithology about three centuries ago, but it still remains a book name unknown to the rustic. Nor has this common little bird any widely known vernacular name. If by chance you find a countryman who knows the bird and has a name for it, this will be one which is applied indiscriminately to two, three or four species. The willow wren, in fact, is one of those little birds that are seen rather than distinguished on account of its small size, modest colouring, and close resemblance to other species of warblers, also on account of the quiet, gentle character of its song, which is little noticed in the spring and summer concert of loud, familiar voices. One day in London, during the late summer, I was amused and at the same time a little disgusted at this general indifference to the delicate beauty in a bird sound which distinguishes the willow wren even among such delicate singers as the warblers. It struck me as a kind of aesthetic hardness of hearing. I heard the song in the flower walk in the Kensington Gardens on a Sunday morning and sat down to listen to it, and for half an hour the bird continued to repeat his song two or three times a minute on the trees and bushes within half a dozen yards of my seat. Just after I had sat down, a throstle, perched on the topmost bough of a thorn that projected over the walk, began his song, and continued it a long time, heedless of the people passing below. Now, I noticed that in almost every case the person approaching lifted his eyes to the bird above, apparently admiring the music, sometimes even pausing for a moment in his walk, and that when two or three came together, he not only looked up, but made some remark about the beauty of the song, but from first to last not one of all the passers-by cast a look towards the tree where the willow wren was singing, nor was there anything to show that the sound had any attraction for them, although they must have heard it. The loudness of the thrush prevented them from giving it any attention, and made it practically inaudible. It was a pimpernel blossoming by the side of a poppy, or dahlia, or pony, where, even if seen, it would not be noticed as a beautiful flower. In the chapter on the wood wren, I endeavoured to trace to its source the pleasurable feelings which the song of that bird produces in me and in many others, a charm exceeding that of many more celebrated vocalists. 
In that chapter, the song of the willow wren was mentioned incidentally. Now, these two, wood wren and willow wren, Alibay nearly related, are, in the character of their notes, as widely different as it is possible for two songsters to be. And when we listen attentively to both, we recognise that the feeling produced in us differs in each case, that it has a different cause. In the case of the willow wren, it might be said offhand that our pleasure is simply due to the fact that it is a melodious sound, associated in our minds with summer scenes. As much could be said of any other migrant song, nightingale, tree pipit, black cap, garden warbler, swallow, and a dozen more. But it does not explain the individual and very special charm of this particular bird, what I have ventured to call the secret of the willow wren. After all, it is not a deeply hidden secret, as indeed been half-guessed or hinted by various writers on the bird melody, and as it also happens to be the secret of other singers beside the willow wren, we may, I think, find it an explanation of the fact that the best singers do not invariably please us so well as some that are considered inferior. The song of the willow wren has been called singular and unique among our birds, and Mr. Ward Fowler, who has best described it, says that it forms an almost perfect cadence, and adds, by which I mean that it descends gradually, not, of course, on the notes of our musical scale, by which no birds in the natural state would deign to be fettered, but through fractions of one or perhaps two of our tones, and without returning upward at the end. Now this arrangement of its notes, although very rare and beautiful, does not give the little song its highest aesthetic value. The secret of the charm, I imagine, is traceable to the fact that there is distinctly something human-like in the quality of its voice, its tombe. Many years ago, an observer of wild birds and listener to their songs came to this country, and walking one day in a London suburb, he heard a small bird singing among the trees. The trees were in an enclosure, and he could not see the bird, but there would, he thought, be no difficulty in ascertaining the species, since it would only be necessary to describe its peculiar little song to his friends, and they would tell him. Accordingly, on his return to the house, he proceeded to describe the song and ask the name of the singer. No one could tell him, and much to his surprise, his account of the melody was received with smiles of amusement and incredulity. Described it as a song that was like a wonderfully bright and delicate human voice talking or laughingly saying something rather than singing. It was not until some time afterward that the bird-lover in a strange land discovered that his little talker and laugher among the leaves was a willow-wren. In vain he had turned to the ornithological works. The song he had heard, or at all events the song as he had heard it, was not described therein, and yet to this day he cannot hear it differently, he cannot dissociate the sound from the idea of a fairy-like child with an exquisitely pure, bright, spiritual voice laughingly speaking in some green place. And yet Gilbert White, over a century ago, had noted the human quality in the Willow Wren's voice when he described it as an easy, joyous, laughing note. It is still better to be able to quote Mr. Ward Fowler when writing in A Year with the Birds on the futile attempts which are often made to represent bird songs by means of our notation, since birds are guided in their songs by no regular succession of intervals. Speaking of the Willow Wren in this connection, he adds, Strange as it may seem, the songs of birds may perhaps be more justly compared with a human voice when speaking than with a musical instrument, or with a human voice when singing. The truth of this observation must strike any person who will pay close attention to the singing of birds, but there are two criticisms to be made on it. 
one is that the resemblance of a bird's song to a human voice when speaking is confined to some or to a few species the second is that it is a mistake to think as mr fowler appears to do that resemblance is wholly or mainly due to the fact that the bird's voice is free when singing that like the human voice in talking it is not tied to tones and semitones for instance you note this peculiarity in the willow wren but not in say the wren and the chaffinch although the songs of these two are just as free just as independent of regular intervals as our voices when speaking and laughing the resemblance in a bird's song to human speech is entirely due to the human-like quality in the voice for we find that other songsters notably the swallow has a charm similar to that of the willow wren although the notes of the former bird are differently arranged and do not form anything like a cadence again take the case of the blackbird we are accustomed to describe the blackbird's voice as flute-like and the flute is one of the instruments which most nearly resembles the human voice now on account of the leisurely manner in which the blackbird gives out his notes the resemblance to human speech is not so pronounced as in the case of the willow wren or swallow but when two or three or half a dozen blackbirds are heard singing close together as we sometimes hear them in woods and orchards where they are abundant the effect is singularly beautiful and gives the idea of a conversation being carried on by a set of human beings of arboreal habits not monkeys with glorified voices listening to these blackbird concerts i have sometimes wondered whether or not they produced the same effect on others ears as on mine as of people talking to one another in high-pitched and beautiful tones oddly enough it was only while writing this chapter that i by chance found an affirmative answer to my question glancing through leslie's riverside letters which i had not previously seen i came upon the following remarks quoted from sir george grove in a letter to the author on the blackbird singing he selects a spot where he is within hearing of a comrade and then he begins quite at leisure not at all in a hurry like the thrush a regular conversation and how are you isn't this a fine day let's have a nice talk etc etc he is answered in the same strain and then replies and so on nothing more thoughtful more refined more feeling can be conceived in another passage he writes i love them the robins but they feel a much smaller part than the blackbird does in my heart to hear the blackbird talking to his mate afield off with deliberate refined conversation the very act of grace and courtesy is perfectly splendid there are two more common british songsters that produce much the same effect as the willow wren and blackbird these are the swallow and pied wagtail they are not in the first rank as melodists and i can find no explanation of the fact that they please me better than the great singers other than their more human-like tones which to my hearing have something of an exceedingly beautiful contralto sound the swallow's song is familiar to every one that of the wagtail is not well known the bird has two distinct songs one heard oftenest in early spring consists of a low rambling warble and some resemblance to the winchat song it is the second song heard occasionally until late june frequently uttered on the wing a torrent of loud rapidly uttered and somewhat swallow-like notes it comes nearest in tone to the human voice and has the greatest charm after these we find other songsters with one or two notes or a phrase human-like in quality in their songs of these i will only mention the blackcap linnet 
and tree pipit. The most beautiful of the black caps notes, which comes nearest to the blackbird, have this human sound, and certainly the most beautiful part of the linnet's song is the opening phrase, composed of notes that are both swallow-like and human-like. It may appear strange to some readers that I put the tree pipit with its thin, shrill, canary-like pipe in this list, but his notes are not all of this character. He is, moreover, a most variable singer, and it happens that in some individuals the concluding notes of the song have more of that peculiar human quality than any other British songster. No doubt it was a bird in which these human-like languishing notes at the close of the song were very full and beautiful that inspired Burns to write his Address to a Woodlark. Tree Pipit is often called by that name in Scotland, where the true woodlark is not found. O oh, stay, sweet warbling woodlark, stay, nor quit for me the trembling spray. A hopeless lover courts thy lay, thy soothing, fond complaining. Again, again, that tender part, that I may catch thy melting art, for surely that would touch her heart, who kills me with disdaining. Say, was thy little mate unkind, and heard thee as the passing wind, O noch but love and sorrow joined, sick notes away could waken. Thou tells on never ceasing care, O speechless grief and dark despair, for pity's sake, sweet bird, nay mare, or my poor heart is broken. Much more could be said about these and other species in the passerine order that have some resemblance, distant or faint, to the human voice in their singing notes, an echo, as it were, of our own common emotions, in most cases simply glad or joyous, but sometimes, as in the case of the tree pipit, of another character. And even those species that are furthest removed from us in the character of the sounds they emit have some notes that suggest a highly brightened human voice. Witness the throstle and nightingale. The last approaches to the human voice in that rich musical throb, repeated many times with passion, which is the invariable prelude to a song, and again, in that one low piping note, more sweet than all, four times repeated in a wonderfully beautiful crescendo. Who that ever listened to Carlotta Patti does not remember sounds like those from her lips. It was commonly said of her that her voice was bird-like. Certainly it was clarified and brightened beyond other voices, in some of her notes almost beyond recognition as a human voice. It was a voice that had a great deal of the quality of gladness in it, but less depth of human passion than other great singers. Still, it was a human voice, and just as Carlotta Patti, outshining the best of her sister singers, even as the diamond outsparkles all other gems, rose to the birds in her miraculous flights. So do some of the birds come down and resemble us in their songs. If I am right in thinking that it is the human note in the voices of some passerine birds that gives a peculiar and very great charm to their songs, so that an inferior singer shall please us more than one that ranks high, according to the accepted standard, it remains to ask why it should be so. Why, I mean, should the mere likeness to a human tone in a little singing bird impart so great a pleasure to the mind, when the undoubtedly human-like voices of many non-passerine species do not as a rule affect us in the same way? As a matter of fact, we find in the multitude of species that resemble us in their voices a few, outside the order of singers, that do give us a pleasure similar to that imparted by the willow-wren, swallow, and tree-pipette. 
Thus, among the British birds we have the wood pigeon and the stock dove, the green woodpecker with his laugh-like cry, the cuckoo, a universal favourite on account of his double fluty call, and, to those who are not inclined to be superstitious, the wood owl, a most musical night singer, and the curlew with, in a less degree, various other shorebirds. But in a majority of the larger birds of all orders, the effect produced is different, and often the reverse of pleasant. Or, if such sounds delight us, the feeling differs in character from that produced by the melodious singer, and is mainly due to that wildness with which we are in sympathy expressed by such sounds. Human-like voices are found among the auks, loons, and grebes, eagles and falcons, cuckoos, pigeons, goat-suckers, owls, crows, rails, ducks, waders, and gallinaceous birds. The cries and shrieks of some of these, particularly when heard in the dark hours, in deep woods and marshes, and other solitary places, profoundly impress and even startle the mind, have given rise to all the world over to numberless superstitious beliefs. Such sounds are supposed to proceed from devils, or from demons inhabiting woods and waters and all desert places, from night-wandering witches, spirits sent to prophecy death or disaster, ghosts of dead men and women wandering by night about the world in search of a way out of it, and sometimes human beings who, burdened with dreadful crimes or irredeemable griefs, have been changed into birds. The three British species best known on account of their supernatural character have very remarkable voices with a human sound in him. The raven with his angry, barking cry, and deep, solemn croak, the booming bittern, and the white or church owl with his funeral screech. It is, I think, plain that the various sensations excited in us by the cries, moans, screams, and the more or less musical notes of different species are due to the human emotions which they express or seem to express. If the voice simulates that of a maniac, or of a being tortured in body or mind, or overcome with grief, or maddened with terror, the blood-curdling and other sensations proper to the occasion will be experienced only if we are familiar with the sound or know its cause, the sensation will be weak. Similarly, if in some deep silent wood we are suddenly startled by a loud human whistle, or shouted high, although we may know that a bird somewhere in that waste of foliage around us, utter the shout, we yet cannot help experiencing the feelings, a combination of curiosity, amusement and irritation, which we should have if some friend or some human being had hailed us while purposely keeping out of sight. Finally, if the bird's sounds resemble refined, bright and highly musical human voices, the voices, let us say, of young girls in conversation, expressive of various beautiful qualities, sympathy, tenderness, innocent mirth and overflowing gladness of heart, the effect will be in the highest degree delightful. Herbert Spencer, in his account of the origin of our love of music in his psychology, writes, While the tones of anger and authority are harsh and coarse, the tones of sympathy and refinement are relatively gentle and of agreeable timbre. That is to say, the timbre is associated in experience with the receipt of gratification, has acquired a pleasure-giving quality, and consequently the tones in which music have an allied timbre become pleasure-giving and are called beautiful. Not that this is the sole cause of their pleasure-giving quality. Still, in recalling the tones of instruments which approach the tones of the human voice, and observing that they seem beautiful in proportion to their approach, we see that this secondary aesthetic element is important. 
as with instruments so it is with human voices in proportion as they approach the tones of the human voice expressive of sympathy refinement and other beautiful qualities they will seem beautiful in some cases even more beautiful than those which however high they may rank in other ways are yet without this secondary aesthetic element end of chapter six